The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Good morning. It's Tuesday the 11th of July here in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up today, wages continue to surge as the Bank of England's Governor Andrew Bailey insists that inflation will drop markedly this year. And UK pension funds agreed to pump billions of pounds into British startups. Plus some big news for passive investors. The Nasdaq plans to rebalance the index away from an over-concentration in mega-cap tech. Let's start, though, with a roundup of our top stories. UK wage growth is still at a level that the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey says is fueling inflation. Average weekly earnings excluding bonuses held at 7.3% in the three months through May after figures for the period through April were revised upwards. The data comes as Bailey used his Mansion House speech to signal his belief that inflation will continue to fall this year. Here's what he told the event. Looking ahead, UK headline inflation is set to fall markedly over the remainder of the year. This largely owes to lower energy prices as last year's substantial increases drop out of the annual calculation. But food prices should fall too as lower commodity prices feed through to prices in the shops. Andrew Bailey's comments also coincided with data from the British Retail Consortium showing like-for-like food sales jumped by 9.8% in the second quarter. UK inflation has proved more persistent than in other major economies with the 8.7 headline rate more than four times the BOE's 2% target. Nine of the UK's biggest pension funds have agreed to invest 5% of assets in their default funds into startups by 2030. Aviva, Legal and General, M&G and Phoenix have all committed to the move, which could unlock £50 billion for unlisted firms if the rest of the industry follows suit. The Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, insists that the plan is not mandatory. We're not forcing anyone to invest anywhere they don't want to invest, but we want to remove the barriers so that they can have a a more balanced portfolio and therefore increase the returns to their own pension fund holders. In addition to the pensions deal, the Chancellor also announced plans to roll back parts of the EU's legislation that forces financial firms to separate the cost of investment research from trading expenses at the Mansions House speech that he gave yesterday. Turkey has agreed to support Sweden's bid to join NATO in a major breakthrough which could change the face of Europe's security. Turkey has been delaying its admission since last year. Speaking this morning, NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg said Europe will be safer with Sweden in the alliance. Sweden will become a full-fledged member of this alliance. That's good for Sweden, it's good for Turkey and it's good for all of NATO and it's also good for the, the Baltic region. The NATO Secretary-General there announcing one of the most significant changes in the European security landscape since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 
Now, the Nasdaq is set to do something unprecedented and manually rebalance its index. Bloomberg's James Wilcock reports now. When is too big not a good thing? Well, when you're one of the US's largest six tech companies, they've hit a combined market cap of $10 trillion. For the Nasdaq, that's more than half the index, which breaks regulator rules, and the exchange is planning an intervention. In two weeks' time, it intends to pare back the weighting of its largest stocks. The heavyweights dropped on the news, reversing some of their gains from this year's AI boom. In London, James Walcock, Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. Three Federal Reserve officials came out in favour of more rate rises this year. Although the central bank skipped its last chance to hike, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly was one of those saying the risks of doing too little outweigh those of doing too much. We're likely to need a couple more rate hikes over the course of this year to really bring inflation back into a path that's along a sustainable 2% path. Daily there speaking in Washington. Meanwhile, Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic has been an outlier saying the Fed can be patient and hold well into 2024. New inflation data out tomorrow may weigh on policymakers ahead of the next rate meeting in two weeks' time. Just lastly, bank bonuses have plunged across the board in London. According to a survey of 250 bankers by the global recruitment consultancy Dartmouth Partners, the global slump in deal-making cut pay for investment bankers at almost every level last year. The highest tier of vice presidents made 13% less and all but the most junior associates saw their total compensation fall. As for UK-based bankers, Goldman Sachs is the best-paying investment bank for 2021. Uh, That fell the hardest in 2022, with associates' total compensation down 28% and vice presidents' pay falling almost 25%. So those are a few of our top stories then for you this morning. Uh, Look, I think that it's important also to talk a little bit about the context uh, in terms of the jobs data. Money markets are now pricing in Bank of England rates um, at 6.5% by March. So 150 basis points expected to be added in terms of the Bank of England. And in terms of how that's affecting consumers as well, the latest numbers from MoneyFacts showing the average rate for two-year home loans rising to 6.66% the highest in almost 15 years. So there is the transmission of monetary policy that we're seeing playing out. Uh, We know that we've been talking about a lags because of the way that the Mm. UK mortgage market is structured. But 6.66% is eye-watering and something that's going to be a huge concern for people as they're looking at their budgets when it comes to refinancing. No, absolutely. I thought it was really interesting that in the last hour we spoke to Haig Bathgate, who's head of investments at Atomos, which is owned by Oak Tree Capital Management. Um, he's um, a rare sort of outlier, I think, actually talking about just how significant uh, the Bank of England policy error is. He thinks that if they were to raise another 50 basis points, he thinks that that would be compounding the problems, that, uh, that it's a policy mistake to keep raising interest rates by the Bank of England. Well, let's dig into the story a little bit further then and the latest data we've had on the UK labour market and bring in our senior UK economist, Dan Hansen, for more on this. Dan, this reading on this inflation number, I mean, it, it just looks like more pressure on the Bank of England. Yeah, it does. That's absolutely right. I mean, it, they're, they're absolutely laser focused on on wage growth and, and also the inflation data as well. But in this report we've had this morning, it's going to be the wage growth number that's going to alarm them, particularly in the private sector. Um, it you know it ticked up a little bit in the private sector, seven point seven percent. So 
we're we're looking at a, a very strong reading. I mean, just to br to put some context around it, a reading of sort of three three and a half percent is what's needed to have two to be consistent with two percent inflation. So we're miles away from that. Clearly, um, all of that said, one thing I, I would just add is that if you we're the bank is obsessed with the sort of prices side of the labour market, if you like the wages numbers, but if you look on the quantity sides, the employment numbers, the unemployment numbers. There is some sign there of things beginning to loosen a little bit. And I think that, particularly for those of a more dovish disposition on the Bank of England's Monetary Policy mm. Committee, that would be that would be a positive sign. But I think the bank's just it's just not willing to wait. And Stephen, you were talking about lags in the mortgage market. There are also lags in the labour market. You know, that it takes time for the weakness in the labour or the loosening in the labour market to feed through to the pay numbers, but the bank's just not willing to wait to see that show up. I think that is interesting, isn't it? I mean, the un unemployment did tick up. Um, more workers did come back into the job market, you know, looking for work. And yet, Dan, we were speaking to Manpower Group um, this morning to Chris Gray, the director there for the UK, and he was saying there's still a skills mismatch. People may be looking for work, but, you know, they may not have the right skills to move into a different industry, etc. But it is interesting that the unemployment rate um, is ticking up in the UK. Yeah, it, and you're right. And I think the, the the way you've characterized it there, Caroline, is still correct in the sense that the labor market is still extremely tight, but we're coming from a position of, as I say, extreme tightness. It's a little bit looser, but on any sort of historical metric, um, the labor market is still tight. So the bank has cover to carry on um, lifting interest rates. It's just that these things tend to move when they start moving if you look at history they tend to move very very quickly so if things do start to turn you know you're talking about there someone talking about a policy mistake um and the bank lifting rates by too much you know you feel you feel like that that is becoming an ever-increasing risk as they look at data they're essentially looking in their rear view mirror at lagging data as data as it comes out and they're they're putting very little weight, and they've said this, very little weight on their, their forecasts and just being driven by the data itself. So the risk of some overcooking it and going too high is becoming greater by the day, particularly with rates at this level. I mean, we're going to hear the, about the financial stability report tomorrow. It'll be interesting to hear there about how the bank thinks about the resilience of the household and corporate sector to rising rates, because they are getting to levels now that they previously warned could run the risk of financial instability. Andrew Bailey saying that he expects inflation to come down markedly this year. Is, is that a realistic expectation looking at where the data is now? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that was, I actually thought that was quite a, a sort of dovish comment when I when I heard it, because I thought, given exactly what you've just said, Stephen, given everything that's happened, it's quite hard to have a lot of confidence that that, that is going to take place. I mean, I we've spoken about this many times, but I still think it will come down. and And that's purely a mechanical thing. It's not much to do with what's been happening this year it's a lot to do with the fact that you're going to get these base effects and with it being a year-on-year -year comparison they will fall out the the big rises in prices last year will fall out of the annual comparison so i still think you know a five five or so number by the end of the year looks reasonable but that's very different to even a few months ago you know we we were talking and you said the idea of maybe three percent by the end of the year looked possible so there is there is a lot of uncertainty there, and I, th I just thought it was quite interesting that he sort of um, doubled down on that point, having been burned by it so many times, particularly over the past the past few months with the data. Mm. So yeah, I, I did think that was interesting. Okay, Dan, thank you so much for being with us, Bloomberg Senior UK Economist Dan Hansen. There. Mm -hmm. 
Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, also speaking at the Mansion House dinner was the Chancellor announcing this agreement among nine of Britain's largest pension providers, including Aviva, Legal and General and M&G, to allocate 5% of assets in their default funds to unlisted stocks by 2030. Now, the plan laid out in Jeremy Hunt's speech last night could unlock £50 billion of investment in growth companies. A little earlier, Nicholas Lyons, the Lord Mayor of the City of London, joined me and Lizzie Burden here in this studio. Of course, he's been a big backer, a major proponent of this. He's very positive about the move. Yeah, I'm delighted. This Mm. is a great example of how uh, UK um, long-term savings firms have come together to do something that's right for customers and for uh, the UK economy. Um, first and foremost, this is about pensioners. It's about trying to enhance the, the, uh, the, the, the value of uh, pension pots and putting them into asset classes that are going to give them the best possible returns. But I think it's important to recognize that this is, the, if you like, the what. It's not the how. The what mm. is we want to allocate more money from people's pension savings into the growth economy, into unlisted equities. The how is where my future growth fund comes in. But I suppose it comes back to the question that we've been asking for weeks. If this was where more money would be made, more return on investment, why wouldn't they have done it already? Because they haven't had the capability in in a fragmented pension system to do so. And that's why it's really important. So the, the likes of Aviva and LNG and M&G have very big asset management firms, and they have the capability to do unlisted equity investment, and they do. So making this commitment for them is not such a big deal. But for the other, um, you know, this is 65% of the industry signing up to this compact. And that's just the nine largest players. We expect, you know, others to to join now. Um, uh, But this is, uh, we need to give a a vehicle through which other pension funds can can easily make these investments. And it's important to do this in a large scale because we absolutely must uh, diversify risk as, as intelligently as we can so that we know this is a, a higher risk asset class, but if it's done intelligently, we can limit uh, risk through diversification, enhance returns, and also compress costs. Okay. I mean, maybe a large number of firms, but uh, the overall pensions industry in the UK controls two and a half trillion pounds worth of assets. So this is 50 billion pounds in comparison. Um, so, you know, it's, it's certainly only a very small part of exactly. the industry. Um, is it simply going to incentivise consolidation in the pensions industry? Is that actually what the, the driving force is going to end up being? I don't think so. I think that needs to happen anyway. Mm. Uh, we're, we've got 27,000 different pension pots in the DC pension system. That, we need consolidation. That'll happen anyway. But what this does is it accelerates the opportunity. This is a sort of way of, if you like, pooling assets rather than consolidating pensions. 
so this this gives us a leap ahead to try and do this. We're not trying to do this overnight, though. The the undertaking here is to get to you know 50 billion by 2030. Mm. 50 billion is a number that comes from the fact that DC pensions at the moment have about 550 billion in them. That's growing by 10% a year with new contributions. The, the power of compounding, Warren Buffett's favorite thing, means that by 2030, 550 becomes a trillion. 5% of a trillion is 50 billion. And the Chancellor was at pains to emphasize that this is not mandatory. Yep. But why shouldn't it be if it's so good in exchange for the tax relief that pension providers enjoy? Uh, uh, look, I think there are lots of different ways to look at this, but you know, pension trustees have fiduciary responsibilities. We want them to take those responsibilities seriously. You can't at one stage say, take your responsibilities seriously and invest intelligently in all of these asset classes if we give you the opportunity to do so, and if we release the cap, the cap on costs, which has been another feature of uh, driving them towards passive funds. And then at the same time say, and actually we're taking the power of authority away from you. So look, I think it's, this is a much more British way to do things. Uh, it's a voluntary pact. You say to people, we expect you to do this. You have an opt-out. You need to tell us why you're opting out, because we think this is a good thing to do. And frankly, if the nine largest players, speaking for two-thirds of the pension pot, say this is something that we think is in the interests of customers, I think everybody will say the same. What sort of businesses will qualify? How will UK startups be defined when it comes to unlisted assets? I mean, I think we need to we need to look at the um, you know when 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 we start putting together the future growth fund. These are things that we will look at very carefully. But this is not going to be exclusively UK. Again, this has got to be driven by delivering the best returns for pension savers. We, the good thing is that we know that we've got massive foreign direct investment into this sector from the most sophisticated investors in the world. So these are companies that people really want to invest in. The, the driver of this is that our, our pension pots weren't invested in this asset class, and we want to give them the opportunity to do so. Th that, that to me is very interesting in that case, because then it's sort of investing in global startups, which is a different proposition, so surely. Look, I, this is unquestionably going to be we, because our UK startups are so attractive to international investors. This is something, and, and you know, we, the Future Growth Fund will absolutely look at you know UK regional uh, growth companies. This we, there's a, there's a really good opportunity here to to stimulate uh, across the whole of the UK. As I travel around, you know, Scotland and Wales and Northern England. Uh, there are an amazing number of wonderful startup companies needing accelerator funding, and this will be the bridge to it. I have no doubt at all. But you're already seeing startups, some of Britain's best, listing elsewhere. Surely what was needed was more of a stick, more of a carrot to get uh, companies to list here and be, grow here, be invested in here. Yeah, we. I think you know there's a lot of work going on um, under the auspices of Julia Hoggett at the London Stock Exchange through the Capital Markets Industry Task Force in particular looking at uh, what are the constraints, uh, what, have, what, what has driven the de-equitization in our markets and the challenges that we've had on the listing side. You know, there's still a lot that goes very right about the London Stock Exchange and there's, there's tweaking that's required. You know, the FCA has come out with uh, uh, new listing rules. Uh, there was an announcement of a package of uh, reforms suggested by the Chancellor yesterday. 
we're going to get this right. But this, I think, is a really important thing that sits at the heart of mm. uh, a change in risk culture in this in this country. We have to get more but, uh, uh, risk uh, accepting. Yes, except then it's very difficult to talk about accepting risk if the Chancellor goes out and his main sort of. Um, push on domestic media is to talk about a boost to returns, improving the outcomes for pension fund holders to the tune of a thousand pounds a year. That's almost you know that's the advert, isn't it, to UK pensioners is that it's going to boost your pension pot by a thousand pounds a year, which is difficult if you also have to accept risk that that might not happen. Well, uh, look, we need when we look at the most sophisticated pension systems in the world, when we look at the Canadian state pension systems, the Australian supers, they have between 35 and 50% of assets invested in un unlisted asset classes. Mm. We've only got 7%. Only 1% is in unlisted equities. Unlisted equities is only one part of, this, of the solution here. I expect over the next six or seven years to see most of our pension systems significantly increasing their exposure to unlisted asset classes other than unlisted equities. We, we're going to, we have, we'll have huge requirements to fund mm -hmm. infrastructure projects, private credit, real estate. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is going to be transformative. This is just that, that £1,000 was taken on a sort of an average pension pot of £12,000. That's a 12, it's a 12% increase, basically. I, I just want to ask, the big picture, you had lots of reforms announced by Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, last night. To what extent do they compensate for the damage of Brexit to the City of London? Look, I think it's it's almost impossible to disaggregate what's been happening because we've had the Ukraine uh, situation as well. It, it, the city has put Brexit way in the rearview mirror. You know, we're looking now at, you know, what what can we do? We, ha we have the ability to be more agile from a regulatory point of view. We've got the engagement of the PRA and the FCA. We've got the support of the Bank of England. We've got politicians of both parties saying we want to stimulate growth and investment. Uh, Rachel Reeves is very supportive of what we're doing in the, on the pension side. This is a private sector initiative. You know, we've got and we're putting in place also a long term strategy for the city of London, mm. a roadmap for 2030 and beyond about the changes that we need to make to make us co continue to be very competitive okay. as a preeminent global financial centre. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.